Get ready to meet the trailblazers driving the human change behind our clean energy future. This week on Energy Trailblazers, we meet hydrogen innovator and CEO of Hyzon Motors, Craig Knight. Craig is an entrepreneur dedicated to taking hydrogen technologies out of the lab and into real-world applications. As CEO of Hyzon Motors, Craig believes the future energy system is a distributed one, enabled by self-generated hydrogen, a technology he describes as the great energy leveler. We believe conversations about our clean energy future should be as relevant around a kitchen or a classroom table as they are around boardroom or political tables. We're here to fuel a new energy conversation and it starts with you. Well, Craig Knight, it is so wonderful to have you as part of the Trailblazers series. And it's so wonderful to be talking to a fellow Australian. One, obviously, is creating an incredible amount of global impact in creating our new energy future. And I wanted to start with you because I think we're going to get into your technology company, the entrepreneurial journey that you've been on. But one of the things I found really interesting reading about you in preparation for this conversation is that you believe you've got a personal obligation to make a positive impact. And specifically, your mission is to be a facilitator of decarbonisation for the well-being of future generations. Why is that your mission? Why has that been where you've set your North Star on? Uh, thanks, Holly. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here and share some of our, our story as a company and uh, sounds like a bit of my story as a person too. So in fact, uh, being a kind of scientist at heart, the kind of person that always wants to understand why things work and how things work, I think other scientifically minded people would relate to this kind of idea that as you as you learn about what causes certain things and what was causing, for me it was what was causing climate change over the last several decades, you really want to not only understand why it's happening, but you know what you can do about it. So um, around 20 odd years ago, I had the opportunity to work in a in a group inside a large chemical company that was looking at a lot of emerging technologies that you'd have to call you know in the current parlance clean tech, um, clean tech technology development, clean tech investing, and I came across fuel cell technology in that activity and also met our chairman, George Gu. Um, work, we were working together back then uh, over 20 years ago now, actually. It's just slightly embarrassing to say. No, I love that. And I'm interested because it's so many, like, we're under the, the banner of, you know, helping to create a more uh, sustainable energy future. There's a lot of different paths people can take. You can head down all sorts of routes when it comes to sustainability. And we've featured a lot of them on this podcast series already. We've been talking to people involved in batteries and EV. We've been talking to people involved in nuclear technology. Why for you was it hydrogen? What led you there and led you to hydrogen fuel cell technology? So hydrogen was a really interesting thing because PEM fuel cell technologies had been around for a really long time when we stumbled across it 20 odd years ago. But there were really no substantial examples of commercial success, commercial penetration. But the technology looked interesting and looked like it could it could um, be a positive contributor in terms of making clean power. And you know, I felt, and George felt, and some of our other colleagues we were working with at the time, we felt that PEM fuel cell technology could be a great contributor to a lot of the world's you know energy needs. Um, we didn't have a clear vision for where we would be by 2020, but we could sense that there were applications for remote area power, backup power, and even decarbonizing, you know, other activities that use engines, use mo the traditional engines. We felt like there was potential to leverage the technology into these sectors. And so we set about 
really with a strategy of think big about making a positive impact, but start small. And through Hyzon's parent company, Horizon Fuel Cell, we went on this journey of commercializing low power applications initially, because really there was very little hydrogen available and you had to make the hydrogen available with each fuel cell solution. So you had to start small. And then incrementally, we made bigger and bigger systems that could find their way into more and more applications, you know, replace diesel generators, eventually get into vehicles and so on. And so really it was just an opportunity to take a technology that looked like it should be able to do something good but make it more practical more accessible more useful wrapped in more of a solution and not just technology out of a lab i want to come back to your entrepreneurial journey and and the motto because i love the motto and i think there's so much uh entrepreneurs and people who are thinking about wanting to make their own contribution uh to a cleaner energy future where often the challenge can seem so big that it's easy to think that starting small can't make a difference and i love how you challenge that idea Mm. But I want to touch on hydrogen itself first. You have been working to build the foundations of zero emission mobility since, you know, most of your career really, but certainly since like early 2000s. Let's make sure we've got all our listeners on the same page. How does the technology work? Where do you get your supply from? Talk us through the current hydrogen landscape as well. Okay. So first of all, let's think about the mobility application for hydrogen. And to relate to that, the, the easiest way to relate to it is, we take an electric, electrified vehicle platform, if you like. Um, so a vehicle that runs using an electric motor and an electric drive system, but we use hydrogen as the energy storage you know, media in the vehicle. So the vehicle then functions a bit more like a combustion engine because the power requirements are addressed by the fuel cell and the electric drive, including a little bit of battery, and the energy or the fuel are really in the form of the stored you know, hydrogen. So the hydrogen replaces the, the, the gas tank, the petrol tank, the diesel tank, and the fuel cell essentially replaces the engine. Um, but the propulsion system is electric. So going to fuel cell or hydrogen, you know, propulsion is going electric, but it's going electric where you don't need to pile battery upon battery upon battery to get range from the vehicle. You use the hydrogen for the range. So the challenge, therefore, with going hydrogen electric or fuel cell electric is access to hydrogen. And traditionally, hydrogen's not been something that's very easily available. It's actually in everything. Um, it's in the grass you walk on. It's in the water you drink. It's everywhere. But you have to get it out of those you know, stable forms of, of or those kind of stable molecules. And getting it out takes effort. And the big issue with hydrogen is once you get it out of whatever it was in, such as water, which usually you get the hydrogen out with electrolysis, um, once you get the hydrogen out, it's not easy to store and transport. So in actual fact, the major challenge around hydrogen is producing hydrogen close to where you want to use it. So we have a mandate to accelerate this commercial vehicle adoption. And one of the ways we do that is make hydrogen available close to the demand centers so close to where the fleet vehicles operate whether it's a bus fleet you know urban transit bus fleet whether it's a concrete truck fleet or whether it's a garbage truck fleet or refrigerated food delivery trucks a lot of these vehicles are very busy and operating on these back to base type of models whereby hydrogen investment close by to the demand center you know, can facilitate substantial fleet operations and contribute handsomely to decarbonization without needing to create like a national network of hydrogen, you know, stations, for example. So the hydrogen availability challenge is meaningful, 
but it's certainly something that can be tackled through a logical approach and a little bit more along the lines of the think big, start small motto. You think it might be too daunting to decarbonize, for example, truck freight, but what if you decarbonize one depot that's got 200 trucks first and then you decarbonize another depot that's got another 100 trucks and then eventually all these you know local activities are contributing to substantial decarbonization i love that piece around kind of that modular approach of taking the puzzle bit by bit still moving towards a logical solution and a vision of how it can knit together but very much taking that chunk by chunk approach can i ask a, just a continuation of that question really can you talk us through cost per kilometer compared with hydrocarbon how far can we go because that's often one of the things that you talk about when you're talking about electric vehicles battery power etc talk through to us about some of the comparisons and the strengths and weaknesses of hydrogen Sure. So at this point, it's really useful to compare battery electrification and where it can get you to versus, you know, fuel cell electrification. So frankly, relatively small, relatively light vehicles um, that are used for personal use, especially, you know, really, this is a fairly logical domain for battery electrification, you know, in the near term, we believe. Um, but heavy vehicles, especially those payload imperative type vehicles where they want to get as many tons on the on the vehicle every time it goes out the driveway as possible. And those vehicles that are really busy, maybe there's you know two driver shifts a day or more, for example, um, these kind of very heavy vehicles with high utilization, um, these naturally lend themselves to hydrogen because one of the features of battery electric mobility, of course, is you need to charge the batteries. And so the bigger the battery, then the more power you need and the more time you need to do that. So if you've got these commercial vehicle applications where the vehicle's used, you know, 16, 18, 20, 24 hours a day, obviously charging time's not attractive in that kind of use case. Um, so we really, we really look to target the high utilization and heavy duty type vehicles with payload imperatives. And we start with the back to base operations because going back to the other comment, that means that you can logically and profitably develop hydrogen availability close to those demand centers for the vehicles. So really we see the lighter, lighter use case kind of vehicles naturally being BEV and the heavy duty, heavier use case vehicles naturally being, you know, on hydrogen. Coming back to your question about kind of cost per kilometer, cost per mile type of stuff. Um, something that helps people relate to the costs of running fuel cell electric vehicles is um, fuel equivalency. So for example, one kilogram of hydrogen in a city bus would equate to around about six or seven liters of diesel consumed in that bus to get the same amount of utility. So that means if if I'm paying less for my one kilogram of hydrogen than I would have paid for, say, six litres of diesel, I'm going to be saving money every driven kilometre, every driven mile. So in some use cases, you get even more litres of diesel equivalency because diesel vehicle systems can be more or less efficient depending on the operating mode. The diesel engine will be most efficient just sitting on the highway chugging along it'll be least efficient with a lot of stop start and a lot of auxiliary power needs like a garbage truck compactor, like refrigeration units, like concrete trucks and all these sort of things. So we look for the applications that are least efficient on diesel. That way, every one kilogram of hydrogen is giving you even more liters of diesel equivalency. And we've seen diesel equivalent kind of efficiency of vehicles operating uh, in Europe on hydrogen uh, exceeding eight liters of diesel for every one kilogram of hydrogen. So if I'm sourcing hydrogen for say five Australian dollars a kilogram, I have to think about, am I getting more than five 
you know, $5 worth uh, of diesel, well, at if it's eight litres, um, that's a lot more than $5 worth of diesel. So in the Aussie context, for of course. <laughs> So yeah, we really we really believe that the total cost of ownership, including the vehicle capital cost of the vehicle, and the you know maintenance and so on, uh, will be showing um, fuel cell electric heavy vehicles operating at or below their diesel vehicle equivalent you know TCOs within the next one to two years, based on some projects that are in the works right now. That's so exciting. And I appreciate you talking us through that. And one of the things that's striking me about what you've shared so far is when you talked about 20 years ago when you started the the organization, you really were moving out after the potential of what you believed hydrogen can be. And there wasn't a clear vision, understandably, of where you might be by 2020, because as with any emerging technology, we're kind of believers in the potential, but not in many ways constrained around the, the, the what that potential could look like and just how significant yeah. that technological advancement could be. So I'm interested with the application and use case because one of the things I did read about you is you were sort of technology agnostic and commercially focused and your ambition was to achieve sustainable decarbonisation targets without millions of dollars of government subsidy, without billions of dollars of private capital. And specifically, you wanted to create a profitable fuel cell company in an industry that basically hadn't seen profit in 30 years. So can you talk us through how the use case and the thinking evolved to develop the business model? Because I think that's Mm. often one of the the limitations people have got when they approach a whole raft of sustainable energy solutions is this profitability piece and how do we do it at scale and how do we make this work in the way that the models that might have sustained us for a very long time um, have turned a profit for the organisations that have done that? Right. Yeah, very good line of questioning there, Holly. Actually, if you, you know, wind the clock back, I'm pretty sure we were completely deluded that we could, you know, create a viable business around fuel cells in a short space of time. Um, you know, it was more realistic to think it really would take us 20 years to get here. So, um, obviously, we were more optimistic than that, or we may not have, you know, we may not have embarked on this journey. Um, so, I sometimes say to people, it's great to be early to a party, um, but it's great to be a little bit early to a party. When you're 15 years early to a party, that's you know a little too early. So anyway, we we worked hard to find find use cases for fuel cell technology where we could validate a use case, find a customer that was willing to buy our fuel cell technology, put it into use, and make money doing it. So we kind of always used to reflect on this internally that we should make money on every single thing we do because we could see so many people throwing their money at things like fuel cell technology didn't have a commercial mandate at all. It was just a way to spend money, a way to do R&D. But for us, it was very much a commercial mandate. You know, we had limited capital. We started the business with our own money. We brought in, you know, friends and family type investment to get started. You, you don't exactly have massive amounts of capital to, to um, you know, to chase fancy business models. So we learned how to, um, you know, to crawl, then walk, then run. So we went after niches where we could compete with an incumbent power solution and the technology didn't matter. The customer was not buying your solution because it was a fuel cell. They were simply buying it because it solved a problem or it saved them money. Simple. So we were competing with diesel gensets, with various battery backup systems, with all kinds of different things, and delivering value to the customer, even though they weren't looking for a fuel cell. Nobody was counting carbon. Nobody was thinking about the emissions, frankly. And we learned how to innovate and to become much more internally, vertically integrated around making core materials, around designing 
you know, systems and subsystems. And so that's how the parent company arises. And it ended up totally vertically integrated in, you know, catalyst preparation, membrane coding, multi-layer MEA assembly through automated processes over time as we scaled the business and designing bipolar plates, then designing the fuel cells themselves, the control systems, all the software that supports it, and then working on the applications so that you could hand a customer a solution to a power problem. That's what we did over the years. So we managed to find some applications where it made sense to customers to buy our technology, even though they weren't looking for the technology you know, specifically, but they were looking for solutions to power problems. And I think that that experience and that kind of legacy, you know, 18 odd years of doing, doing that and surviving that way and getting by, you know, eating our own cooking, as I say, it kind of enabled us to continue to innovate in an iterative fashion and it really made us you know highly highly flexible and innovative and because we had to figure out how to compete in a world where nobody was asking for fuel cells so now uh, the environment we're in is one where everybody's asking for this technology so all of a sudden we have this golden opportunity to use all the experience how to survive how to innovate how to make products at the lowest possible cost so you can sell them and make a margin and reinvest you know reinvest those margins every year reinvesting the margin and you know paying ourselves enough money to eat kind of thing. So, you know, we continued to reinvest and improve and iterate on the technology until we got to a point where the technology offering and the market requirement started lining up. But as I say to people, it wouldn't have mattered how beautiful the technology was sitting in a lab. It only matters that the technology is is capable when the external factors line up to support the adoption. And that includes hydrogen availability. So hydrogen availability just started to become a reality in the last five to seven years at different rates in different parts of the world. But that's what really created this opportunity for us to look for this breakthrough, this threshold around heavy mobility, because, you know, some of the countries in Europe and then Japan and Korea and China were all investing in hydrogen, making it available for mobility applications. So, um, yeah, it's certainly been quite a journey. And we really, as I said, had to survive in an environment where people were not looking for fuel cells. But now it's very nice to be in a, in a place where the market wants this technology and values the decarbonisation contribution that it can make. So many questions that come from that. But the immediate one for me is you talked about being 15 years early to a party and then eating your own cooking. <laughs> so that need to can, can kind of believe in what you're doing and continually be, be testing and at the forefront of um, your own work and, and thinking. But what I wondered about was how you go on that journey of, of telling the story, educating a market, finding fellow believers. You mentioned before we started this conversation, you've, you've done 400, 500 Zoom calls or digital calls during your most recent fundraising round. And you said, that's a fraction of what I've been through over the, the two decades. So I'm interested as someone who's been blazing a trail 15 years early to a party, waiting for the world to kind of catch up. What have you learned and I guess what resilience has that required from you and what strategies have you had to develop? Because I'm sure they've been all manner of naysayers and people have told you, no, you're too early, the world's not ready, it can't be done. How have you stayed the course and what strategies can listeners learn from the example that you and your founders have set in that regard? Yeah, right. So obviously we've had to be a little stubborn in our views or we would have given up a long time ago. So we had to be stubborn. Um, we also had to be pretty resilient um, because there's plenty of things that don't work. 
another thing, as George Guru, our chairman, you know, sometimes says, there's nothing wrong with making mistakes, right? You know, as long as you're learning from them. Um, but very importantly, try to make sure the mistakes are only small mistakes, <laughs> not really big mistakes. So, you know, you have to experiment, you have to try things, but you have to be willing to pivot. So, you know, we've tried all manner of different to make all manner of different kind of applications from the core fuel cell technology over the years and had varying degrees of success you know doing doing this um but fortunately we remained flexible enough and innovative enough and continually kind of seeking out those opportunities looking for those little niches i think just downright persistent enough to make it this far so happily as i said we've now found some some applications where the market really wants the technology and the world needs decarbonization of heavy vehicles so i think we luckily we were you know dogmatic enough to have stuck at it you know long enough to be still be here today because i'm sure um you know, many didn't make it. We know many didn't make it. I like that. Stubborn, persistent and experimenters, I think, were the three things that came through really strongly for me there. The other thing I wanted to touch on is you mentioned kind of crawling, walking and then running. What has that required of you as a leader and an entrepreneur in those different stages? As you've scaled and the responsibility gets bigger and the footprint of what you're doing and working on, the complexity of the business changes, how have you had to evolve as a leader and, a, and an entrepreneur? Oh, look, we've learned so much along the way. Um, it's it's endless. It's an endless process uh, of learning for sure. You know, we've been fortunate enough to have really stable shareholders who've been very patient. They backed us going back a long time, back to 2005, 6, 7. But, you know, we really survived by selling product and making margins since then. So that's a pretty unusual thing in the fuel cell space. And winding back to one of your earlier comments, um, in technology, frequently companies don't figure out how to make margins, right? So I think one of the one of the things that, um, you know, we really were pretty persistent about was making sure that everything we did, we made some margin on. Like I said before, we had to make money on everything. We know you inherently can't survive if you're willing to do things for negative margins. And Horizon was a pretty unusual beast in the fuel cell space because we kind of developed a market where we were selling quite a few products and making money. And, you know, a lot of companies in fuel cell technologies still today haven't figured out how to make money. I think that um, over time, as, as the business evolves and as the challenges change, um, naturally, it becomes all about bringing in people that complement, you know, your capabilities. So we've been on you know, some pretty dramatic hiring blitzes over the years, depending on what we were doing and where we were going and what the priorities were, but none more so than recently, you know, since setting up Heizen Motors in early 2020, you know, we've now got almost 100 people on the payroll, plus plus some others, you know, contractors and, 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 and collaborations outside that. Um, and that number is expected to grow to several hundred people here in the next couple of years. Um, so you've, we have to go out and find the talent that, that you know, facilitates the, the growth and and facilitates the achievement of the the goals because the goals get well beyond the reach of any one or two of us that's got you know ideas and you know know-how and knowledge and experience it really becomes a, a team effort so I think that you know we, we've been doing our very best to kind of learn as we go to the extent that we identify 
the gaps so that we can hire to fill the gaps and hire to build on the strengths, but also feel, you know, accommodate for the weaknesses. Now, Craig, I would love to get your opinion for listeners who've engaged in some version of the hydrogen conversation or debate. You know, there's interesting commentary online, and I'd love to get your opinion on a few of the areas of argument or detraction that people talk about when they talk about hydrogen technology. One is around the energy vector transition. So one of the the major criticisms of hydrogen is around energy efficiency, you know, given the energy has to move from the wire to the gas to the wire in order to to power a vehicle, say, Mm. Um, and that there's a lot of energy loss in that process when we contrast it with an EV. How much of a challenge is that for you? And for you, is that a detraction? I think one of the things I find interesting when we're talking about kind of the EV hydrogen debate is the assumption I feel like sometime in the commentary that it's a zero sum came like one has to win or the other yeah. versus the idea that you've kind of been talking about that there are different use cases. Yep. So I agree with you. It's not a zero sum game. Um, frankly, there are literally billions of combustion engines that have got to get off fossil fuels. Um, there will be more than one solution <laughs> to that challenge. That is a mammoth task. Um, Now, we spoke a little bit earlier about lighter and lower utilization kind of use case vehicles being more suited to battery electrification, heavier duty, high utilization vehicles being more suited to hydrogen electrification, fuel cell electrification. Um, Just to reflect on the round trip efficiency argument. So there's a lot of arguments that kind of draw this beautiful chart this beautiful curve of you know start to finish efficiency and they compare like electric vehicle to a fuel cell electric vehicle Um, it's nonsense it assumes that all the electrons at the start of that chart were created equal and it you don't have to look very far to understand whether or not all electrons are created equal look at the dynamic pricing on the national electricity market, the NAM in Australia. So pricing goes from being essentially free to being thousands of dollars a megawatt hour. So that chart is nonsense because where did you pick up that electron? You know, Whereas hydrogen is storable, it's dispatchable. And the electrons flowing through the wires are not storable and dispatchable. So therefore, um, in our view, the round trip efficiency argument is a nonsense because the electricity is not always available when you want it, when you need it. And for commercial vehicle operations in particular, you cannot choose when to charge. If I've got a car and it's electric and I go home and I plug it in and I've got a nice smart algorithm on my charger that says when when the um, off-peak rate comes on, my charger will go on and charge my car, that's fine. But if I'm running a business and I'm running 18 hours a day of driving, you know, trucks around or of running port equipment or whatever, I don't have the luxury of just choosing when to charge. I have to charge when I need the charge in the operation. So we go after commercial use cases, simple. And we don't we don't enter into a discussion of round trip efficiency because you simply can't fulfill the use case on battery electrification alone in the markets that we go after. So I hope it's clear that, you know, if you assumed all electrons were created equal, then the round trip efficiency thing would be definitely very valid. But just look at the grids around the world. There are terawatts of power curtailed from renewable inputs in Germany every year. Those electrons would have been really useful to somebody, but they were generated when nobody wanted them. And likewise, that when grids hit peak capacity three times last September, the electric buses in, in California were told not to charge because the grids couldn't cope. And that's where the penetration of almost nil. I mean, it's peanuts, way, 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 way less than 1% of the, 
of buses and uh, heavy vehicles going on to electric. But you imagine if there was 10% of the buses on battery electrification, the grid simply can't cope. And then there are more than 10 times as many trucks as there are buses. So what if there was 10% of the trucks? It's out of question. You know, it's just absolutely out of the question that the grid can cope with those kind of loads. Definitely. And I know you've touched on this kind of already in what you've talked about, but the hydrogen fueling network piece is another one that comes up a lot. Um, they're sort of saying that, you know, compared to the charging stations we're building for EVs all around the place, it just facilitates um, a level of, of transport that makes possible, you know, transcontinental travel and things like that. Um, talk us through your perspective on that in a little more detail. Sure. So a couple of perspectives on the, the network model. First of all, we are targeting in the near term these kind of back-to-base fleet operations. So high utilisation going in and out of the same depot, or maybe it's like one depot to another depot, point-to-point type operation. We're not looking at trying to make you know, our vehicles universally you know, applicable and ubiquitous across the whole United States, across the whole Canada, across the whole of Europe, whatever. We are looking at meaningful decarbonisation activities. This is trucks and buses that are driven 16 or 18 or 20 hours a day, frequently operating out of one depot or moving between two depots, for example. We can have a very positive, meaningful impact with good economics because we focus on these demand centres that require minimal hydrogen infrastructure. I can have one set of hydrogen production infrastructure and a couple of dispensers and I can have hundreds of busy commercial vehicles running off those things. And so one of the interesting, very interesting factors here comparing um, fuel cell electrification compared to battery electrification is you start to get some insight when you think about how hydrogen scales and you realize that the marginal cost of adoption around fuel cell electric commercial vehicles comes down because as hydrogen scales, it gets cheaper and cheaper because there's more molecules flowing through the same dispenser because it fills up the truck in five minutes and then there's another one behind it. If you only fill up 10 trucks a day compared to 50 trucks a day, obviously the cost structure is improving dramatically using that dispenser 50 times a day, which you can do because it takes five or 10 minutes to fill the truck, unlike battery charging. You can't just keep using the same piece of infrastructure for more and more and more and more vehicles. It takes too long. So battery electrification in commercial vehicle scenarios hits an increasing marginal cost of adoption. Why? Because the depots don't have enough room for charging infrastructure. The buses or trucks can't be used 24 hours a day. They need to buy more assets. And the grid itself runs out of supply capacity as the fleets scale. So you actually hit an increasing marginal cost of adoption around battery electrification. Whereas hydrogen continues to benefit Mm. from a decreasing marginal cost of adoption because it's much easier to scale hydrogen. So in our view, our highly viable, commercially attractive local hydrogen production hubs that support busy localised types of fleet operations create a network over time because every hub is viable. And I build a viable hub supporting maybe delivery trucks and concrete trucks and garbage trucks and urban transit buses in one location, 50 miles away or 100 miles away, someone else builds a similar hub in another location. Before you know it, these highly viable local hubs create a network. What's the strongest network? It's one where each node is itself strong. So over time, these viable hubs create a network. For example, a a prime mover, as they call it in the US, a class eight truck. Um, You need between one megawatt and one and a half megawatts per vehicle for a fast charge. 
So picture a roadhouse where you normally see a couple dozen trucks, for example, filling up with diesel. You imagine if that roadhouse needs 20, 30, 40 megawatts of power to charge the vehicles there. Now, a dozen or two dozen vehicles fill up with diesel like 10 minutes each. Even on a fast charge, those trucks take a lot more than that. So it's not it's not a megawatt times the number of trucks there. You also have to multiply that by the slower time factor of charging the batteries. So you're talking about 60, 80, 100 megawatts of power to a little roadhouse on the side of the highway? I don't see how that can physically happen. The, the networks don't support it. The electricity grid can't supply that. I'm interested for your perspective on where the world is now and what that will afford in the next 20 years. You've been on this journey with hydrogen for, for 20 plus years yourself. And you mentioned you're at a time now where you've kind of, the world are demanding it. They're asking questions. There's a level of commercial focus. There's a level of capital and competition that are testing new use cases. Where do you get excited about where this technology can go in the next 20 years? What for you is the, the next horizon? So for us, the really meaningful stuff happens when the hydrogen powered vehicles become more competitive than fossil fuel vehicles in every way. The performance is better. The, the fact that they don't make any noise in the, you know, in the community, you know, that's much better. The fact that they don't make air pollution at all, you know, there's zero emission, that's much better. And when the cost structure is better. So when these vehicles outperform their diesel cousins in every way, we know we've won and we know we've done something good um, because then there's no reason to buy a polluting diesel truck. How close do you think that is? Within one to two years, we will show use cases in California, in Australia and parts of Europe where the trucks will be running cheaper on hydrogen than they do on diesel within one to two years. Phenomenal. And I wanted to ask you too about other applications. I mean, is it possible for trains? Is aviation with hydrogen a possibility? Where else might this develop in the next 10, 20 years? Yes, uh, Holly, you're on the right line. Basically, anywhere where there's a big engine, you can use hydrogen. <laughs> that was my thought. <laughs> trains are a very interesting use case because trains are electric propulsion with a diesel engine sitting on the top, chugging away to charge, you know, and provide to, to go through a rectifier to provide electric power to the to the train. And mining equipment's the same. They're electric propulsion systems with a diesel generator powering it, basically. So trains, mining equipment, ships, port equipment – all these things, construction equipment, all these things have to get off diesel as well, right? They have to get off fossil fuels. Um, and to answer your question, yes, we have done a train project. We've done a couple of air – well, we're in the middle of delivering on a couple of aircraft projects. So this this is definitely um, a trend that that replacing all these kind of power systems with, with PEM fuel cell technology or some other zero-emission alternative has to happen and will happen. And – for us, our focus is in the on-road heavy vehicle applications because we feel we can really accelerate the uptake there and the other applications will take time to evolve. And on that front, Hyzon Motors will only supply like fuel cell powertrains. We're not going to get involved in trying to deliver a whole train or a whole aircraft or a whole mining truck or whatever. We'll be more like supplying powertrain solutions to those applications. But definitely those are evolving constantly. The other thing I wanted to touch on when you were mentioning nodes and talking about the strength of the nodes and this kind of collaboration naturally that comes with the idea of a network. But I also know that's at the heartbeat of your business and the approach you've 
take and collaboration's been key. Can you talk us through why that's been so critical to the growth of your company and the impact you're seeing in the hydrogen space, but also any lessons you've learned about how to do collaboration well? Sure. So I guess the collaboration thing is uh, out of necessity, especially in this hydrogen space, because um, some of the early moves we were making to facilitate um, you know, hydrogen vehicles, uh, hydrogen heavy vehicles uh, being adopted, you run into little barriers along the way. And then uh, after a while, you start looking for the external parties who can help you solve the, the challenges, the problems, right? So we launched uh, an initiative called the Hyzon Zero Carbon Alliance. And this is with kind of like-minded companies who are all trying to accelerate the rate at which the energy transition happens in commercial mobility. So we've partnered up with some leading energy infrastructure companies. We have Woodside recently joined our alliance from, from Australia. And then we have um, Total from France, for example, Heringer in New Zealand, a you know, hydrogen network company. We have other companies providing services such as Bank of America for finance, particularly in North America. Then we've got AXA for insurance. These, these companies all want to facilitate this 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 change right they all want to facilitate this energy transition so and then on top of that we've got some hydrogen production partners and some you know use case sponsors um that are looking to facilitate you know decarbonization in mining like arc energy which is a subsidiary of careers inc and then we've got hydrogen technology partners as well uh, raven sr and recarbon who have hydrogen production technologies so that we can make hydrogen almost anywhere we go from unwanted resources such as landfill and landfill gas, for example. So we identified the the need to pull together this kind of ecosystem, this, as I jokingly called it to, to the groups when we started toying with the ideas around it, I said, we need a like a coalition of the willing for, for hydrogen, you know, for, for, for progressing the hydrogen ecosystem, a coalition of the hydrogen willing. So um, in the end, it, it turned into a into a, an alliance uh, of companies that all have a, you know, very strong shared vision and including Neom from Saudi, which is going to be the world's first zero emission city and industrial complex, um, which is a 500 billion billion dollar investment by the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund to create this city and and industrial cluster that will have zero environmental footprint. It's a staggering concept. So we realized that we can't do this alone. It's a lot of heavy lifting. We need a lot of help. We need a lot of help on technology. We need a lot of help on hydrogen supply. We need a lot of help on services like finance and insurance because the customers have a hard time just saying yes to hydrogen when a lot of this stuff is not available to them to be able to move towards hydrogen without without some help and without multiple parties getting involved. If you had to condense kind of 20 plus years of this learning journey that you've been on down into a single best bit of advice for those listening to our conversation, what would be the, the wisdom that you'd impart or the lesson that you'd like to offer? One thing we've learned, you know, through good and bad is that you know, innovation wins a lot of the time and small guys innovate, small girls innovate, small companies innovate. Um, don't be disheartened by the headwinds and by the big incumbents that say, you know, they'll crush you or they'll say it'll never work or don't be disheartened by the naysayers who say it'll never work because some other technology is always going to beat it or whatever because you can do a lot with innovation. And a relentless focus on innovation um, gives you the opportunity to 
keep finding those success points, those proof points that enable you to keep progressing. So for us, we've been heavily focused on just constantly forever innovating, frankly. And the other one for me, you talked there about the people who, the headwinds, the people tell you you can't do it, the naysayers. In those moments where it all seemed too hard and where you felt like your back was against the wall a little bit, what's your advice in those moments for people who are blazing their own trail right now and are maybe struggling to keep the resolve or thinking it's all just a bit too difficult? Any pearl of wisdom for how to stick through it in those tough times? I mean, it's self-belief, right? Uh, self-belief and you know, I mean we've made plenty of mistakes over the years don't don't uh, think I'm any kind of guru um, that's never made a mistake uh, we've made plenty of mistakes but um, you know learn from them and try to make sure they're not too big and keep that self-belief that just keeps you going in the same direction and and learn from those little mistakes, pick yourself up, keep moving. One of the things we're passionate about with Trailblazers, Craig, and it's kind of the, the note I want to finish on is that this series sparks a whole new set of energy conversations uh, as much around dinner tables and classroom tables as around boardroom tables and political corridors and the like. So I, I wanted to ask you, I guess, if people were to leave our conversation with everything that we've touched on uh, and spark a conversation about hydrogen, what question would you encourage them to go and ask or what fact would you share with them that's interesting and might surprise them in order that they can go and share that and say, hey, did you know? Or, hey, this is food for thought. I have something which we have not discussed, which I think is one of the most important things about hydrogen. Hydrogen is the best enabler of energy independence and energy resilience. The world's traditional energy systems fossil fuels and even, you know, the use of fossil fuels for electricity grids and so on are built on outdated models. They're built on outdated models of highly centralized and transport dependent, transport heavy types of supply chains and all the rest of it. The future energy system is a much more distributed one where local generation of energy from all sorts of feedstocks, materials, natural resources, etc., will be advantaged versus any of the traditional kind of fossil fuel based and traditional legacy system based energy systems. So we believe local energy production is is possible with hydrogen, enabled by hydrogen. And we do believe that you can become self-reliant on energy supplies by focusing on energy for the hard to abate sectors like transport, for example, and that you can cut the shackles from the traditional you know, supply chains dramatically. So a country that imports a lot of fossil fuels has the most to gain by moving towards hydrogen, self-generated hydrogen. Regional centres that are at the tail ends of all these distribution systems for networks and, and distribution of fossil fuels and the like, they have the most to gain through the energy independence and energy resilience of hydrogen. So we believe that hydrogen is a great leveller you're no longer disadvantaged by being at the far end of a distribution chain and all that sort of thing because you can make your own energy. You can make it anywhere from almost anything. I love the the positivity and the empowerment that I feel like ran through that answer. Uh, final question, are you an optimist about our ability to solve the challenge that is in front of us, the, the climate change absolutely. challenge and, and to come up with new solutions? Absolutely. I'm always an optimist. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done this stuff for so long. And I also am a great believer in the planet's ability to heal. So, um, you know, the wonders of nature around us are so substantial, but the, the planet can heal from the damage we've inflicted on it, providing we take the right 
steps to to abate you know um, a lot of the negative impact we have on the planet today Oh, I love that kind of local heartbeat and that notion that, you know, each and every one of us has an opportunity to gain and to realize potential in our energy future. And and that encouragement, I think, Craig, that you've offered for people to embrace the challenges of what may not be created yet and to step out on their own entrepreneurial endeavor, start small, but think big uh, and go for it with that self-belief and kind of motivation sitting behind them. So thank you so much for sharing so much of your own entrepreneurial endeavor, your company's journey and your perspective on hydrogen as well. It's been such a privilege to have you on the series. Uh, It's been great. Thank you very much for your time. And it's a great opportunity for us to share some of our story. Thanks to EY for partnering with us to amplify people following the path of most resistance. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and subscribe to the series. Are you a trailblazer or inspired by a trailblazer? Leave a comment, let us know, join the movement.